There's pretty big excitement this week with the official news that Wayne Gretzky, Dustin Johnson, and Steve Nash were all joining Joe Ty on the ownership group for the Las Vegas National Lacrosse League expansion franchise. This week on Box Beat, we dive into that. I'm going to be joined by Terry Foy, the CEO of Inside Lacrosse. He was at the announcement in Las Vegas, and we talk after he gets back to Baltimore about all things Las Vegas franchise, how it impacts the team and the league having these big names as part of the ownership group. Then we also talk about how things have been for Inside the Cross during the pandemic. It's an interesting case study of what life is like for a media company, specifically in the lacrosse world, during these difficult times. I'm Stephen Stamp. I am pleased to have you with me here on Box Beat. Stay tuned. It's going to be a good one. Joining me on Box Labit, as promised, is Terry Foy, the CEO of Inside Lacrosse. And Terry, we're going to start out with the announcement from Las Vegas of the new National Lacrosse League franchise with ownership that includes Wayne Gretzky, Dustin Johnson, Steve Nash, all joining Joe Ty. And from my perspective, just watching everything from the outside and you know, watching the the reaction to it, it feels like there's been a lot of clamor around the NLL and the lacrosse community has been really big, but it also feels like there's traction outside of the usual audience and substantial traction. Honestly, I feel like it's the kind of attention the sport usually seems to get primarily when either something really bad happens or someone does something really stupid. Um, and then people suddenly seem to pay, you know, there's a line brawl or something, but this seems like right. a really positive energy. I'm just curious what you were like, you felt, you know, being there for the announcement, what the energy was like in Vegas and then a response to how you feel about outside of the actual event. Yeah. Well, it's, it's kind of a funny downside of being at the event is that you're not really able to monitor social media the way that you would be if you were at home. And so as a result, you are much better qualified to speak to the vibe outside of, you know, kind of that close group, both who were in attendance and then also, uh, you know, the, the, the folks that are involved in making this decision and, and bringing it to life. And, and so, you know, I can say that if you feel that way, that is exactly the intended outcome. Uh, I think it's fair to say that, and, and I think by virtue of Joe and Wayne's presence and comments on, Monday, as opposed to the fact that, you know, Dustin having come just off of the U.S. Open and, and Steve having just completed the Eastern Conference semifinals game seven were not in attendance and provided comments via video. But, you know, I think it's, it's fair to say that that this ownership group came together because Joe was interested in owning a second NLL team after the experience and obviously a positive experience that he's liked uh, owning and operating the San Diego Seals. Uh, the Seals had played a game in Vegas two seasons ago and uh, clearly found that to be successful. There are elements of the market that we can talk about later on that were clearly appealing, and that was discussed at the opening press conference as well. But the way I understand the group having come together is 
you know, Wayne had approached or had had a conversation with Commissioner Nick Sakevich about his interest in being in, in owning a team or, or being part of an ownership group. Nick had connected Wayne and Joe. Wayne brought in his brother-in-law, Dustin Johnson, and then Joe brought in his coach of his NBA team, Steve, uh, who, you know, both uh, – or Steve, rather, had grown up in Victoria and been a fan of Kevin Alexander and the Shamrocks and had played when he was young. So I think that it, it's obvious because Joe owns the Seals independently. He could have owned and operated Vegas himself without the assistance of a star-studded ownership group. But I think among, in addition to the fact that, that Wayne wanted to be a part of the league and, and own a team and what league wouldn't want the greatest hockey player of all time to be a part of its ownership group, board of governors, capital table. In addition to that, I think that there was an understanding that, that the amount of attention that would be associated with this announcement and those three names was going to be worthwhile. And so if you're, if, if you sense that it worked then I think it, it totally validates all the effort that the group put into bringing it to light. Yeah. And uh, one note, you, you did say uh, Gretzky's brother-in-law, it's his son-in-law, right? He's engaged to Gretzky's oh, daughter. Oh, son-in-law. Yes. Yeah. That's okay. I know That's Wayne looks very youthful still, so it's easy to, uh, <laughs> <laughs> to make the mistake. And uh, yeah. And I mean, Wayne Gretzky, of course, the, I was that's that was one of my questions I was going to ask because obviously Nash coaches for the Brooklyn Nets team that that Joe owns so there's the obvious connection and I was wondering about the Gretzky connection because I didn't know where that was so it's interesting that Wayne had approached the league and Nixikevich and that got them connected and obviously I would assume once Wayne did that that the next group that was going to start a team would want him involved. I mean, you don't say no to having, like you said, having Wayne Gretzky involved because such a big name and the lacrosse background. I mean, he, he is famously, I mean, for some people who knew him, I would think especially Americans who didn't necessarily know him as much when he was younger, um, they might not realize the connection to lacrosse that he has had. He always played. He's famously talked about uh, one of his famous coaches saying he thinks the the worst thing that's happened to the game is year-round specialization, especially playing summer hockey when kids should be putting away their skates and picking up everything else. And he specifically says lacrosse. Um, and that used to be the way it went, obviously. Kids would play hockey through the winter, lacrosse through the summer. Um, and, you know, some video, there's the video that came out, of course, of Joe and, and Wayne playing catch, which is great. And there's some videos that come yep. out now and then of him of, of Gretzky just playing with this lacrosse stick but I mean he played a lot in Brantford growing up so there's that obvious connection but what uh what did you feel like I guess being there and now having uh having been able to look back a little bit and think about it what do you feel like he brings beside the obvious name recognition what did just his presence there seem to bring to the the event and to the to the operation. So I think that I want to divide that question into two parts or two answers. So the first is, but they, they are very much uh, conjoined. So the first is the sense of being in Las Vegas, what that means and what my impressions were and, and specifically how it changed from what my impression would have been had I not been in attendance. And then, I, and then yeah, I can address kind of what I think it means. And, and so essentially the, the thing that the, the, I was there for about 72 hours and the 
strongest impression that I came away with was Las Vegas, which has a reputation for being the most transient place, certainly in North America, if not in the world, in terms of the percentage of people who are not from there, who are going to be there on any given time. That sells short the fact that, you know, it's a it's a market of about, you know, a couple million people that live there. And you can make an argument that for 40 years, Las Vegas was the most important sports town in the country because everybody would migrate there to bet on sports. And yet there was no professional sports team representation, largely because pro sports leagues were afraid of the association with sports betting. Obviously that's changed and the entry of the Vegas gold Knights into the NHL was the first of what now is, you know, three, four significant arrivals of a pro sports team. Certainly the building of Allegiant stadium and the relocation of the Oakland Raiders to Las Vegas is hugely significant. Uh, Obviously the presence of NBA summer league for a really long time has created a, a platform for the NBA in Vegas as well the presence of the aces, the WNBA team, which will share an arena with the Las Vegas NLL team is really substantial. But I think to this point, and certainly being there while the Knights were in the, you know, NHL playoffs playing the Montreal Canadiens, the anecdote that I would use is that game seven of an NBA playoff series, the Hawks versus the Sixers was going on at the same time as game four of Knights Canadians. And Knights Canadians got the big screen in the sports book. And that's a big deal. And to me, that's an indication of the fact that Las Vegas sports climate knows that there's this local element to their offering now and that they need to service for lack of a better word. And the reason I bring it up in the context of asking what Gretzky brings to the equation is I was talking to a couple of local media folks after we had an opportunity to talk to, to Joe and to Wayne and, and to Nick Kevich and I was getting their sense of how big of a deal this was for the local sports community, because, you know, there, there certainly was a lot of focus on the grassroots lacrosse community in Las Vegas, but, you know, I was interested in, in these were general sports reporters. I was interested in their opinion on what it meant for the broader sports fan in Vegas. And they just kept remarking on how insane Vegas had become for hockey and how the biggest element of this announcement that really garnered people's attention when so much focus was on the Knights was Wayne's involvement. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that's something not to be lost. It's interesting because in places where there is a strong grassroots lacrosse community, the arrival of an NL team is most often associated with lacrosse. Whereas in places where there isn't as strong of a lacrosse community, because they typically play in a hockey arena and because the game is so often marketed to hockey fans and there are elements of the game that would be familiar to anybody who is familiar with hockey. And a lot of people aren't familiar with box lacrosse. That is so often the way the conversation goes. And it's, it's interesting and kind of intriguing in the context of your prior answer to think about it that way, because it's a really organic Canadian way, but box across became what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Is because of its association with hockey. And so I guess what I'm trying to say is the, the strongest impression that I came away from having been there is that 
Las Vegas is very much from a local fan standpoint, become a hockey town and that the uh, presence of Wayne uh, being involved in the ownership group has really highlighted the role of hockey in promoting lacrosse. I think the involvement of Steve Nash is really interesting too, because, and as not, not being an NBA person, really, I don't really follow it. I'm not a big fan of uh, pro basketball. Um, I didn't actually realize until fairly recently that he was coaching the Nets. Um, so I was like, oh, okay, there's an obvious connection. That's why he's involved. But when I think of Steve Nash, I think of him in high school. Plus, I mean, I did used to watch him. Uh, I, I liked watching the Suns when he was running them and, you know, winning, uh, winning NBA, NBA MVP awards. And as a Canadian feeling like, oh, this is cool. This guy, you know, this Canadian player who's winning, uh, winning championships or winning awards. And, but I remember him in high school because I was going to the University of Victoria uh, for, for rowing and, and school. And he was playing for first for Oak Bay, the uh, Oak Bay high school team. And then he went to St. Mike's University School. And I remember he, they would play tournaments. I, I remember watching them provincial championships up at the university campus. And it was incredible. I mean, watching this kid. And when you first see him, I mean, he's not the tallest guy. He does, he's not like a huge guy. He just looks like a, you know, athlete just walking around. Uh, and then you watch him play and the things he would do on the floor were unbelievable. So uh, to have him involved is just really cool personally. And I think a lot of Canadians will, will connect there as well. And, and as much as that is something that I think a lot you pointed out about the local population. And I think that is something that people didn't realize or generally don't is how much of a local population there is that has to, like you said, service the, the transient population. So there is the local, but the transient population will also be an important factor in this, right? Cause it's going to bring people in and you get Gretzky and Nash and people don't seem to mind going down to Vegas. And I think the more, even more Canadians might be coming down now. Yeah, well, so just quickly on Nash, I mean, one of the things that's uh, really exciting and compelling for me is, you know, in addition to his two and a half, three decade long career as a notable basketball figure, whether it be as a player or now as a coach, over the last 10 years, I feel like his reputation and image as just a clear thinker, a well-rounded sports person, you know, somebody who has been on the table talking about Champions League soccer and has invested in sports documentary filmmaking and been a part of a number of different charitable organizations. I think Steve is just widely regarded as as a good guy. And I think a smart guy and a guy who's capable of managing a lot of really high stakes things. And I think that this season coaching, you know, three incredible superstars, but carrying with that, all the quote unquote baggage that comes along with it. And I think, you know, despite the fact that injuries ultimately ended their season shorter than anybody would have liked and many expected, I think he demonstrated that he's really capable of, you know, balancing a lot and, who knows the role that each of these, you know, additional owners will play in influencing the direction of the team. But to this point, what we do know is associating their names with it and their images with it is meant to do something. And so 
you can speak to what Steve's association means for credibility and interest with Canadians. And what I would say in terms of what I can contribute to that from my point of view is in addition to knowing that Joe and Wayne are, are incredibly accomplished from a professional standpoint, Steve brings a diverse perspective and background uh, from, you know, a, a, a you know, kind of different frame of time and will contribute a lot that way as well. So, you know, I think that he brings a lot to the table and, uh, and, you know, his, his name and his thoughts being associated with, with forming the director, the direction of the team uh, is really intriguing for sure. And not to downplay the role of Dustin Johnson, but I mean, Gretzky and Nash are the ones that excited me, but Dustin Johnson, obviously a very well-known golfer, uh, one of the best in the world. Uh, I believe he's the third all-time winning uh, winner in terms of money being won on the PGA tour. Um, Pretty remarkable. And the, the, maybe the thing that they all share in common and having common with Joe Ty is like you alluded to with Nash is they're pretty calm. They're pretty cool. They're pretty, I mean, Wayne or Dustin Johnson has developed into a guy who doesn't seem to get rattled on the golf course. Right. I mean, as a younger player, I think he like so many young, younger people had some challenges in that area, but he seems to have just kind of dialed it in and it, it really speaks well to handling the challenges of a new, a new franchise to have so many people who are so, so chill. Yeah, that's well said, uh, particularly because, you know, expansion franchises tend to be Rocky roads, correct. And, uh, and so, you know, just being uh, even keeled in terms of expectations and and payoff and, you know, really what that suggests in terms of faith in ownership uh, is obviously very important. So yeah, I would, I would agree with you Uh, beyond that, you know, I, 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 they didn't get a lot into, uh, Dustin's background or relationship to the sport. So I think that's a story to be told. Uh, but, uh, but obviously, you know, the familial relationship with Gretzky was, was clearly a cornerstone, uh, to his inclusion in the group for sure. You can just imagine the conversation. I don't know if they were having like family dinners or uh, I'm not sure. I mean, sure they were on the golf traveling. Course. probably around the I'm golf gonna, course. right? Yeah. I'm going to guess they were on the golf course when this, when this conversation happened. Yeah. I wonder if it was, you know, if they're, they're going to Vegas, maybe they're on the putting green and, and Dustin and Wayne were having a little putting competition. And Wayne was like, Hey, I'm going into this NLL team. If I make this putt, you have to come on as a, as a part owner. I wouldn't be surprised if that's exactly how it went. I think, I think it is. I think I might start spreading that as the, uh, as the backstory. Um, I have go. no idea to be officially clear. I have no idea how it happened. Um, so I guess the big thing is what does it all mean for Vegas and for the NLL from a business perspective uh, that we're talking about here? What's uh, you know, from an engagement perspective with others, we've talked a bit about how it is already bringing um, eyes on the sport from fans of other sports is this going to translate to broader appeal in the longer run sometimes there's a bit of a splash and people see the the initial announcement and then don't necessarily stick with it they move on but can this draw people in we always talk about how you get some people to a lacrosse games and they're going to want to come back and, and is it going to is it going to translate that way yeah i mean i think that that's obviously a huge part of what the nll has tried to accomplish both with respect to making expansion a priority right and and in the introductory press conference remarks the commissioner talked about the growth of franchise value you and certainly 
the growth from nine to 15 teams under his tenure. And, you know, expansion is about a couple of things. On the one hand, it's about franchise value, what owners are willing to pay in order to get in on this action. And like buying anything, your reason for doing so, right, doesn't necessarily need to be the same as somebody else's reason. But the thing that makes it comparative is that dollar amount. And I would say that between the sale of the rush and now, you know, this expansion team, it's pretty clear that despite having not played a game since March of 2020, the league has continued to progress with respect to ownership groups wanting to be a part of the league. And one of the things about Las Vegas is it continues to expand the geographic footprint of the league which is important from a broadcast standpoint, whether that's in Canada or in the United States. And it continues to expand the diverse locations where you're going, particularly when you see that the league has recently added Fort Worth and San Diego as markets, then it's just pushed South and it's pushed West in a way that relative to what it was like before that wasn't nearly as substantial. So, you know, when you're looking at division realignment and trying to balance travel among teams in order to create a schedule that is appealing to fans, but also realistic for players and staff. I think there's a lot of logic and it makes a lot of sense. I think one of the things that Vegas represents that, you know, you've mentioned a few of the elements to it, but we, you know, probably should go into a little bit more detail is just, you know, what it means from the commercial side of sports. And obviously it's been associated with sports betting for half a century, but there's more to it than just that. I mean, so much of computer vision and AI and statistical analysis around sports that happens, those things happen in parallel with technology experts that do a lot of do a lot around sports betting. And I think a lot of that is true also for sports science and coaching development as well. You know, a lot of people spend their off seasons in Vegas, et cetera. So there's so much associated benefit from being in this market before you even get to the fact that I think this is going to be the first road game that gets circled on most fans, most NLL fans calendars when their team's schedule comes out. And then the last thing that I would add is just when you're walking around a hotel or a casino in Las Vegas, looking for something to do. And the fact that there's an NLL game nine nights a year that sit right alongside, you know, a Cirque du Soleil show or a concert, you're going to get people that just decide that's what they want to do. I don't think that that's really available in most other places where NLL teams play. And so I think there's so much that just kind of comes beneficial benefit wise out of being in Las Vegas. I don't want to call it hidden, but there are benefits that don't really exist in many other markets. So a lot of times they don't get discussed the way that, you know, all right, what are we going to do to generate a local fan base in Las Vegas? That's an important question. I'm not trying to sell that Mm -hmm. short, but it's far from the only question. One final thing in this area I wanted to just touch on that comes up with you talking, you know, you're talking about the value of franchises increasing and spreading West and, and, and uh, South and getting, you know, getting more people involved is Nick Sikavich has talked from the beginning or very early on in his tenure about wanting to get to 16 teams quickly. And then after that, kind of reevaluating, setting a new course and, and planning, you know, up to 30 teams. I don't think there's any specific blueprint for the number, but team 16, I assume will be coming pretty quickly, but I, th- I feel like we all had a sense of 
some of the teams that would probably be coming. And I think um, Dallas, Fort Worth area, I sensed, I, I kind of had a feel for a few years that was coming. Vegas, I think was a pretty, pretty well known that there was interest in it. Nick didn't hide that and it, it wasn't a big surprise. But now I feel like Team 16 could be pretty much anywhere. Any sense that you can share of where that might go? I've heard, I mean, Winnipeg, Montreal, um, Grand Rapids, uh, St. Louis, uh, Nashville, so many places, you know, back to Edmonton, back to some other places. What are you thinking? So I would just kind of agree with the first part of your question, which is relative to the last couple of expansion locations, the 16th market is much wider open. And I say that uh, you, you said you, you expect it to come quickly. I don't know what your definition of quickly is. I would be surprised. It, it is possible that the ball, the, the ball is already in motion. You know, the gears are spinning on what the market is going to be. I don't think that is the case. I do think that they have gotten interest from a number of ownership groups and potential markets but I don't think they've really started working on deals in order to put a team into a 16th market. My sense is that there's interest within the league of playing this season, seeing how it goes, and then re-engaging with the interested ownership groups on the basis of all the things, all the positive things that I think they expect to see happen that, you know, I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that like right now they know what a franchise costs, but there is hope that when you get through another season and you haven't been 15 months without a game and maybe you see a bump in attendance or maybe you get a TV deal in place or maybe you do have sports betting in place, then the franchise for number 16 goes up even more, not only because the way to actually profit from a team is more obvious, but also because there's more competition for whoever wants to be that 16th ownership group. All that being said, where is the place that makes the most sense? You know, I, I think I would get the map in terms of 14 clusters so that you could go to four, four team divisions because I agree with you in the sense that I think that there's an expectation that once you get to 16, you do pause for at least a couple years in a sense of like, we have gotten to what is pretty widely regarded as what's necessary in order to be considered like a national league. Now let's try to like recoup some of, of the energy and the capital that was spent in order to get to this point, as opposed to continuing to rush. That's just my sense. So if that's the case, then because if, if say for instance, and the reason I share it this way is because if you felt like you were going to go from you know, so, so the league will go from 13 to 14 in, in one season, right? Cause they didn't play uh, for a full season. And then they'll go from 14 to 15 the following year. And then if you were to go from 15 to 16 the year after that, and then 16 to 17 the year after that, well, then it doesn't matter where the team is because you're not really looking for any type of stasis in terms of your schedule, in terms of your competition, in terms of your regional or divisional format. So but if you do want to take a two, three year pause to expansion, it makes sense to try to, uh, to strategically identify a market that is going to work with your schedule and it's going to work with your division alignment. Um, and if that were the case, you know, I would look, I would look Northwest um, and, and see, you know, what 
type of division, depending, you know, I think it makes, it makes pretty obvious sense for Colorado to be grouped with Vegas, San Diego and Fort Worth. And so uh, from that standpoint, you know, when you look at uh, the Warriors and, uh, and the rush, uh, there is like kind of a, a need for uh, some teams to be, or, or at least one team to be included in, in kind of that Northwest part of the United States or, or uh, Western part of Canada. And so, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to make a bet, but I do think some of the candidates that you laid out are realistic. I thought that was very well put. I don't, I don't even need to follow up on that. I think basically all the points you were making are things that, that occur to me that I think a lot of people, when they really sit down and think about it, it, it does make sense. And uh, I think that's good. Is there anything else you want to add about the, the Vegas thing? Cause I would like to move on to, uh, to talk about inside lacrosse and as a lacrosse business, how the pandemic has been a challenge and how it's, it's moving forward. No, I think we covered a lot when it comes to Vegas. Okay. So as the CEO of Inside Lacrosse, obviously there's been a lot of challenges in the pandemic. And I'm curious the challenges that you've you've faced. And and for anyone who doesn't know, I I'm editor for IL Indoor. So obviously I'm part of the Inside Lacrosse family. So I know some of this, but I'm not involved in a lot of the difficult decisions you have to make or any of those difficult decisions. I just do my thing and, and uh, hear what's, what's happening kind of like everyone else. Um, but I know there's, you know, recruiting showcase events are obviously affected. Some of the stuff where the, the inside of the cross is kind of going out into the community. There's been a really big growth area that would have been the most impacted, but then there are effects obviously on the magazine, the website, the scoreboard and that. So, you want to start with the the events maybe because that seems the most obvious impact that would have happened. Yeah. I mean, I, I, kind of, but I, but let me just go chronologically because I feel like that's probably an easier way to explain it. Sure. Um, which is to say that, you know, certainly the most disruptive and the most substantial thing that happened was the uh, cancellation of the 2020 college and high school seasons and the way in which that really, affected how we were meant to cover how we were meant to do our jobs right mm-hmm. there just wasn't the same content that existed and so we had to you know pivot what we did last spring and, and into the early summer in the same you know span of time when we were doing what everybody was doing which is you know retrofitting your business figuring out how you were going to get folks paid while also making sure that everybody stayed safe and so you know, balancing those challenges was pretty difficult. And of course, when the, when, it, when things were happening and there was so much that was unknown about this virus and how it spread and how long it was going to be with us and what it meant for uh, outdoor sports, youth sports, et cetera, you know, that was something that we monitored very closely in April and May of, of 2020. And you know, it became clear and, and it, you know, there was essentially a binary choice in March or early April where some folks that occupy the space that we occupy, right. We're essentially, we host tournaments, we host showcases. They, some groups made the decision to just proactively cancel for the remainder of 2020 and, and others did not. And when I took it to our staff and said, we can make the decision to cancel right now, and not host anything for the rest of this year, or we can just say we are 
going to follow the changing situation as quickly as possible and make the appropriate decision on the available timeline. Our group wanted to do that. We do this full time. There wasn't, there wasn't a, okay, this is a part-time gig. I'll just set this aside for the year and I'll go focus on my other job. And so as a result, once we decided we're just going to try to figure this out, well, I think what we saw last summer with, you know, declining rates into June and decisions made around reopening for outdoor activities allowed us to host some events in August, uh, July and August, and then again in October, November. And so I think that helped maintain a certain floor for the business and the side of the business that's been most heavily impacted into 2021 has been our advertiser base. And I think that's pretty obvious, but maybe not necessarily for reasons that are incredibly obvious, but, you know, the timing of the pandemic was really injurious to lacrosse equipment manufacturers because such a high percentage of lacrosse equipment is sold in March and into early April because the majority of lacrosse equipment is sold equipment is sold to youth players and some youth leagues don't start until all into April. And so as a result, what happened was, you know, those, those lost sales in 2020 are what set 2021 marketing budgets. And so they just got retracted. And so as a result, you know, competition for those, those advertising opportunities in conjunction with the fact that there was still so much uncertainty about who was going to play when this spring, it all amounted to the fact fact that there just wasn't the normal advertising base that there typically is. And so, you know, we had to get creative. We had to try to find uh, new partners to work with. And uh, we also had to, you know, kind of pivot into different types of revenue strategies. So, you know, the thing that is most heartening about the way that the last four months have unfolded, and, and we sit here recording a week before our first event of the 2021 summer season, is that, you know, the core asset of Inside Lacrosse is InsideLacrosse.com. And a big part of InsideLacrosse.com is our college and high school scoreboard. And I don't think we should have taken for granted that the audience was going to come back in 2021 at the level of what it had been in, say, 2019 and 2020 before the season shut down. And so we were really encouraged to see growth. And we saw growth in spite of the fact that not every team played and most teams didn't play as many games as they usually do. And so as a result, there actually was a significant reduction in, in content, right? And obviously you saw it with respect to the absence of an NLL season altogether. And now, you know, uh, if there will be summer lacrosse in Canada, condensed summer lacrosse. But mm. still, in spite of that, we managed to see user growth to InsideLacrosse.com grow by 20%. You know, we saw session growth grow by 10% and page view growth grow between five and 10%. So, you know, we were, like I said, really encouraged by the fact that, uh, you know, you can kind of make two bets. Losing a season increases uh, people's appetite for content or changing their user habits decreases the likelihood that they return to the thing that they did before. And, and I'm not certain that we wanted to make a bet one way or the other. But being able to analyze it once it's been, once it's accomplished, once it's once it's worked, once it's it's been done, uh, you know, it feels really good that we were able to see 
engaging with our website and and that was really really encouraging and will be will remain really encouraging going forward that's that's really great to hear and i mean we haven't had this conversation before so that's i'm hearing a lot of these details for the first time but what we have had conversations you and i and i've talked to matt Kinnear, our editor-in-chief and you know bob chavez that i've done uh, il indoor with that um from just the indoor side the box side was just trying to come up with things to write about to keep engaging yeah. folks and and there's there's two sides of it. One is to engage the the folks, the you know the readership who are so wonderful and, and you know it's so you want to provide good content for them, good material for them to read. So we came up with some things that you know I had some ideas, Matt had some ideas, Bob. You know everyone just would throw in ideas. So we did things like a virtual NLL Champions tournament where I took all the champions of this century and created a tournament and people voted to, to move forward. And, um, and that was pretty fun. we're doing some folks on the hall of fame. So we had to come up with a lot of different things and it was challenging at times. And I think that goes to a little bit to the other side of the people producing it. Like, especially, you know, you and, and the other guys, uh, the other folks, I shouldn't just say guys, but the other people kind of up in the food chain within a, an organization have to have the, the drive to keep going and, and keep doing it. Like you said, you decided to to keep going and, and plan the events and make them happen. I know I feel pretty happy about some of the things we came up with on the IL indoor side. I think it would actually pr- produce some content we wouldn't have thought of otherwise, which is fun and interesting to, to, you know, finding the spot. But there are also times where we're all dealing with the pandemic as well. And there are days when each of us would just have a tough time, I think, with the motivation, with like, you know, when's this going to end? How do I just keep doing this? And it's, it's good 100%. to see that we've, we've all gotten, gotten through it to this point as we start to see a light at the end of the tunnel. So, yeah, no, I mean, there's no question that, that having to balance kind of the emotion of dealing with the pandemic in terms of the, just the normal life side of it is real. And then when you try to overlay that or, you know, combine that or, or mix it in with, with work, the notion of uh, doing something, experimenting, right? Doing something for the first time, you know, particularly when it's something that you have done before, it, it, it comes with, with benefits, but it also comes with drawbacks. And so, you know, when, for instance, you mentioned just creating like all this uh, timeless content, one of the benefits is you get people responding to it positively and you never would have created it in a normal environment. And so now you know that people like that and you can either, you know, be pumped up and move on or you can work it into your plans going forward. And then on the flip side, you know, one of the things for us that was really, I don't want to call it problematic or frustrating, but it was just something that we had to deal with is, you know, the, the beginning of the college lacrosse season in January and February, it's always chaotic and there's always a lot of work to be done. But despite the fact that we're short staffed, we kind of make up for that through our experience and our ability to be efficient as a result. But our experience this year wasn't nearly as valuable as it usually is because the schedule wasn't what it usually is. We didn't have like the normal ability that we usually do to be able to say this week is when we do this and next week is when we do that. And the week after is when we do this. And so as a result, we just kind of had to wake up every morning and respond to that day's challenge and, you know, certainly not asking for, for sympathy or, or complaining too much. It's just, you know, it's, it's part of the process of, of dealing with a pandemic and, and taking the challenges that are, that are dealt to you. So mm-hmm. you, you, you learn, you benefit from the experiences, you try to recover from, you know, the, 
the anxiety and, and everything else that goes along with navigating it uh, professionally and, and personally. And you just try to figure out what life is like on the backside. Are there some specific things? I mean, you mentioned the, um, you mentioned that uh, there are some things that you figure out, do differently and find ways to do and be efficient. And I'm curious, I feel like a lot of businesses and organizations have found some things that they were forced to do that now they're just like, huh, that's actually a pretty way, good way to do it. Or are there a couple of examples that where you think, hey, this is something we had to adapt to and maybe this is something we should just keep doing? Yeah, I mean, obviously remote work is where it starts. Um, we had an office where everybody went every day and, uh, you know, real, I, I, I always knew that we were an office that was going to be able to handle working remotely pretty well because of the nature of our work. Uh, but there are downsides. One of the things that became really important was just consistent communication um, because the consistency of daily meetings or whatever the case may be, you know, it, 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 at the outset, it was, we need this from a socialization standpoint. And then it developed into, I think we're all really benefiting from hearing and, and being confronted with what everybody else is working on, right? So there isn't this, temptation to assume that people aren't doing anything and uh or or whatever the case may be and so i think that was really beneficial in terms of just parts of the business that don't necessarily interact with each other very frequently realizing or learning in a way that they wouldn't have in kind of the normal office environment what everybody else was working on so you know regardless of what that means for our future i think uh we will continue to be diligent about that type of like full company communication um in terms of of just the benefits of of making sure that that people who don't necessarily work with each other uh have a good sense of of what others have going on okay well uh terry really appreciate you coming on it's uh i think a very interesting conversation both about the the vegas franchise and the Im implications and impacts for the national lacrosse league but also the just the side of inside the cross and how it's kept going, how things have been pivoted, how you've had to, I mean, I think everyone's tired of the word pivot, but it's a reality. It's something we've all had to do. So I appreciate you taking the time and uh, it's great to hear that things are going well and we're, we're heading in a positive direction. So thanks for coming on and uh, good luck with, with everything moving forward. Yes, yeah, Stephen, I just really want to, reciprocate that and, and thank you for your you know diligence and and creativity in terms of navigating it from an aisle indoor standpoint and obviously staying on top of things uh both in terms of what's developing within the nll what's developing within the youth box scene the junior and senior box scenes in canada and just kind of keeping your finger on the pulse as you always do so uh thank you so much for your work and, and thanks for having me on Right, lacrosse friends, that will just about wrap things up for this episode of Boxel Beat on Lacrosse Link. Thanks so much for being with me. I'm Stephen Stamp, your host, and I want to thank Terry Foy, the CEO of Inside Lacrosse, for coming on. A great conversation. I really find it interesting, his insight into Las Vegas and the greater ramifications for the National Lacrosse League and just how Inside Lacrosse has dealt with all the challenges of the pandemic. They're the kind of things that we're all facing. And for, for me, I think having a look in, into one of the leading lacrosse companies in the world, 
and seeing how they managed to keep doing things and just keep rolling, I, I think was really great. So thanks to Terry and of course to you lacrosse for being with me. Uh, can't wait to talk to you all next week here on Boxle Beat on Lacrosse Link. And do let me know if there's something you'd like covered, if you have any ideas for anything, please feel free to get in touch. Hit me up on Twitter at Stamplax. You can email me, stamplax at hotmail.com. Always happy to hear from the fans. Always keen to have conversations with my lacrosse friends. We'll have another great conversation next week on Box the Beat on Lacrosse Link. Hey.